Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Microbe Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm Tess, and joining us today is a special guest. This is someone I've been trying to get on the podcast for quite some time now, because she's just so delightful. The first time I met Dr. Juliet Morrison, I was just blown away by her whole aura of positivity. She's just so easy to talk to and a pure joy to listen. She's got quite the story. So I hope you will enjoy our little interview today with one of my favorite virologists, Dr. Juliet Morrison. My name is Juliet Morrison, and I'm a virologist and assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology and Plant Pathology at UC Riverside. So I would love to talk a little bit more about your journey into virology. Do you have like a favorite microbe inspired drink or food? Oh, yes. I am a big fan of like a juicy Cabernet Sauvignon. And I also really enjoy kimchi. I put it on lots of different things. Have you always been into kimchi or is that something that you recently found? Um, the past, I'd say five or so years. Like when I finally discovered it, I realized just how tasty it is, especially with eggs. And now I'm kind of addicted. Yeah. Uh, kimchi is great. Have you ever made your own kimchi? I have not. Have you? No, I made sauerkraut once, but it got moldy. So I never ate it. <laughs> That was actually in my general microbiology class. We made sauerkraut and the whole, everyone's got moldy. So I blame the TA on that one. <laughs> so do you have a favorite microbe or microbial function? Um, you know, that's a hard one. My favorite microbes are definitely viruses because I'm a virologist. And I guess I could narrow it down to two types, which happens to be the ones I actually work on in my lab. So dengue viruses and influenza viruses. I find dengue virus interesting because there are four different serotypes that circulate. And if you're infected with one serotype, you gain immunity against that serotype. However, that immunity comes at a cost. So you actually are more likely to develop severe disease if you are infected with any of the other three types. Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't know that. So I think that's pretty interesting. It's due to this um, phenomenon called antibody-mediated enhancement. And um, I like influenza viruses because there are always new strains emerging and they're just ubiquitous. So they're cool. Yeah. So I guess like thinking back through your journey was what made you become a virologist? Was there a particular moment where you're like, yeah, I'm going to become a virologist or did it kind of just evenly flow through? I think I got interested in it as a child um, because um, when I was growing up, um, dengue virus, there were always dengue virus outbreaks in Jamaica, which is where I'm from. And so, you know, I saw the toll of that disease. And then as I got older and I started, you know, watching a lot of zombie fiction and reading zombie fiction, it kind of cemented things. I, like I, the rage virus from 28 Days Later was such an interesting concept that I felt like I wanted to learn a lot more about viruses. I mean, it turns out that that particular um, virus is not, I mean, the rage virus obviously does not behave like any virus we know of, but it did spark my interest in virology to a really deep level. What has it been like for you as a virologist kind of living through this pandemic that we have that is a virus pandemic? 
exhausting and also exciting. So, you know, on one hand, we're seeing how fast science can work when it's well-funded. Like we have highly efficacious vaccines in a matter of months. And um, I could not have even conceived of that before. So we do know that we have the technology to actually rapidly respond to um, emerging um, viruses, emerging pathogens in general. And so seeing that play out has been exciting. But on the other hand, it's been truly disappointing to see how the, uh, the Trump administration bungled the response to the pandemic, to see how many people are dying and suffering. And I'm just hoping that the citizens of this country and across the globe will realize that we actually have to invest in our public health infrastructure if we're going to prevent this catastrophe from happening again. Also, I hope it opens people's eyes to the fact that there are that these viruses that keep emerging will continue to emerge because of the relationship that we have with our environment. As long as we continue to encroach on forests and other habitats, um, zoonotic viruses will keep jumping into the human population. So it's not if it will happen again, it's just when. And so we have to be, we have to put in the work to prevent this from happening again in the future. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that encroachment aspect of virology and, and the zoonotic jumping from, from animals to humans. Well, for something like SARS-CoV-2 and other coronaviruses that it's related to, we know that the likely um, intermediate host was a bat, right? Or the likely initial host was a bat. And so bats don't generally like humans. They don't want to hang out, spend time with us, but we keep going into forests, going into their caves, um, mingling with them. So it's inevitable that we will end up getting diseases that these animals carry. And bats carry a lot of different viruses. They um, have a fantastically interesting immune system where it's like always primed. So these viruses can replicate to a small extent, but cannot cause disease in the bats. And yet we're going out there and capturing these things, killing these things, interacting with these things. So it's inevitable that this would happen. So do you think that the solution is to stay away, stay farther away from wild habitats? I think so. Yeah. Like that would be my, my belief, but I mean, capitalism, who knows? Capitalism will do what capitalism does. Exactly. They cut down all those trees, dig up all of those minerals. We'll see. And then I was wondering, um, what are what are some of the biggest misconceptions you, you hear about viruses or being a virologist? Like, do people come up to me like, oh, you're a virologist. So, of course, you know, X, Y, Z. And you're like, no, that's not what I do. Huh. That's a um, misconceptions that really. Well, I think it, it does bother me when people think that viruses are like bacteria, right? And that they think that viruses can just mutate in the air or on surfaces. And that's just not the case. Like viruses are obligate intracellular parasites, which means that they have to be in a cell to even replicate. And it's only by replicating in a cell that they can acquire mutations. So when I see people talking about, if you spray this thing here, you might select for viral mutants. And it's like, nope, they're not, it's not bacteria. No, it, it's if it's not in a cell, it is completely harmless and it cannot, it is not replicating. So there's that. Do you, do you think viruses are alive or dead? Non-living, I guess. I, I think that, that question is so philosophical that I just don't even think about it anymore. 
I guess if I had to pick, I would say that they're alive, but I don't think very deeply about it. All I know is that they exist and they can mess with us. And there's a pull and, you know, push and pull relationship that we have. And that's how I picture it. Whether they're alive or dead is not that important to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a question that is often asked, I feel like, in every virology class I've ever taken is you have to have that debate. So (laughs) So you don't have that debate when you teach at all? You never ask that or pose that question? I never pose it. It's just, I'm just like, okay, how do we prove this? It just depends on what you think life is. And so that's so philosophical that I will leave that to the philosophers. I will (laughs) sit here and work with my plaque assays and grow up my viruses and infect animals. So, so what animals do you work with in the lab? We work with mice. So we um, have a, a mouse model of influenza that we are exploring. And is it something with chicken eggs too? Uh, we grow influenza in chicken eggs. Yes, so you're correct. We sometimes have like fertilized eggs growing flu in our incubators. What motivates you the most about your research? Like what is the most exciting thing about your day to day? I would say I enjoy my research because I love answering questions and I love solving riddles and puzzles. And honestly, that's what scientific research is. And at least that is what it means to me. And I'm also motivated by the fact that my research has the potential to be translational since I do study human pathogens. And yeah, I think that that's it. It's like the the puzzle of it all. And then also the fact that it could potentially lead to something that could be useful for humanity at some point. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if we can play a little bit with that puzzle analogy. Like how do you pick which puzzle you're going to answer and how do you know when you have all the pieces to complete it? Ooh, that's a hard one. Why <laughs> <laughs> pick? I, so I, I don't, follow a straight line when it comes to my research. Uh, My background is one where I've actually jumped around from different aspects of virology. And I just follow what feels right to me. So if I find a result and I'm like, oh, this is cool, but it's not really within my skill set, I'm still interested in following that up. So I work on gaining the skills and take my research in another direction. So I follow the story. If the story is interesting, I go for it. And as far as figuring out if the puzzle is complete, I don't think the puzzle is ever complete. It's just complete enough for publication. And then (laughs) you still keep going anyway. Right. Yeah. There's always more to learn. You're never, never a dull moment. Mm -hmm. So in your, in your current lab right now, how many different projects or side projects would you say you have going? Which I know it can be hard because you probably have tons of collaborations with other labs too. I would say we have uh, four projects, four projects. Yeah. We're doing one with um, influenza virus where we're trying to identify, well, we think we've identified a population of macrophages in the lung that are um, necessary for promoting recovery from influenza infection. Um, I have another project where we're trying to figure out the mechanism by which dengue virus evades the interferon response another one where we're looking at transcriptional signatures in the liver and spleen of mice that have been infected with different dengue serotypes to see if we can come up with like a pan-dengue signature that we could potentially target therapeutically. Wow, that sounds really exciting. 
Yeah, it is pretty cool. And then we have another project that's just starting up with COVID-19, but there's not much to it right now because we still don't have access to the biosafety level three facility that we need to conduct this research. Does UCR have a BSL-3? Yeah, it was just recently opened. Oh, okay. Yeah, so now it's about trying to get us in there. And it's been hard with the pandemic um, because you have to go through all of this training. And it's just been hard putting that all together during a pandemic. But it is it is there and it is functional. So we just need to get in there. Yeah, <laughs> which can be, um, I'm sure there's tons of red tape to go through. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you knew of any, I'm sure that you do, of any other like, career paths for virology, people who that might be interested in virology, but maybe not in academia, where else can people get careers as virologists? I think any job that benefits from, you know, the kind of skills that you pick up in your PhD, which is basically thinking, researching, putting things together, could benefit somebody who has a PhD in virology, but also a PhD in pop anything really. Friends of mine who are virologists, but who don't work in academia, I have some who work in the the government. So I have one friend who was working at um, USAID, and uh, now he works for BARDA. I have other friends who have gone on to do like technology transfer at universities, research administration at larger foundations. I have, oh, I have a friend who like chief scientific officer at like um, the AIDS research um, organization, AMFAR. So I think there are lots of, lots of potential opportunities outside of academia, for sure. How did you know academia was right for you? I did not know that academia was right for me. It, um, it, was, it was a hard decision, to be honest. Like I went to grad school and then I went and did a postdoc and then I decided I wanted to try it a different field, like I was doing more molecular virology and I was more, I started becoming interested in the host response and in systems virology. Then I went and did a postdoc in that at University of Washington. And before I got there, I was really into academia and then I got to this position and it turned out to be horrible. (laughs) Like just the most horrible experience. The lab (laughs) got shut down because the, Oh no. (laughs) Yeah. It turned out to be um, a sexual predator actually. And I don't know. Like just because when I found out that the school had co- had been covering it up for like years, it just it made me so I don't know, so upset at academia, and I kind of lost my interest in it for a while. Yeah, like they were actively covering it up. They were, they had been covering it up for years. Wow. Yeah, and so I was like, I can't be in one of these institutions. And you know, you hear the horror stories. But then I went to another. Um, position where it was more like a senior scientist type. And in being there, I started realizing that, okay, fine. Yes, academia can be corrupt, but I think it would be benefit. It would benefit from having me in it rather than all of these people who I'm like, oh my God, this is so sketchy or what it, this is. I can't believe they did that. So I'm like, if I'm going to change this situation and also make it more inclusive for people who look like me, I need to actually step up and do it. So that's what prompted me to go into academia. But for a while I was thinking, ah, I could make twice as much doing something else. (laughs) Um, I mean, we'll see. I mean, I've only been doing this now for two years. So, so far so good, but I'm always open to other opportunities. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the ways that you incorporate inclusion into your teaching or into your lab. 
lab, I would say that I have a, a, a code of conduct, like a lab manual that everyone has to read and sign. And so I make it very clear that, you know, there's no discrimination, no bullying, things like that. So, and people have to sign it, which doesn't mean, of course, that that will prevent things. But I also think by just living as myself in a lab as a black woman um, being PI, I think that in itself sets a tone, I think, for my lab. And then as far as my classes go, like I took the COVID-19 pandemic as a, as a teaching um, tool for my students in my post responses to viral pathogens class last spring, where I basically used it to probe the, the differential outcomes we were seeing with um, Black and Native populations and other people of color and how they were dying at a much larger rate from COVID-19 versus white people. And so, I mean, that was an exam on the, the final, even, like A, B, C, D, what, why are African-Americans dying more from COVID-19? It's like, A, genetics? No, because, um, uh, is it because they're more, more fat? No, actually, um, they're not that much fatter than people. And so but one of it is like, there is a racist history in this country and institutional racism does exist. And that is the driver for these differences in health outcomes. Do, do you, did you find that the students were surprised by that? Or did you find that like most people like were accepting of that fact? Or did you get a lot of hate or not hate, but? No, most of them were pretty accepting. I was actually a little scared. I'm like, oh my God, they're going to hate me now, but I can't help myself. Yeah. Most people were like, oh, wow. You know, like I, I actually gave a presentation about different inequities that we do see and it was eye-opening for some of them. And I, I think people really appreciated learning some of these things that they had not learned at all. Yeah, and I think it definitely brings microbiology into sort of like this societal, in these societal issues. Yeah. Um, kind of connects everything together. So I think that's a, it's, it's a great thing to be teaching. So I have kind of a silly question. So I once had a chemistry, my organic chemistry professor when I was an undergrad, he would always play Jimi Hendrix to get his decarboxylation reactions to work. And he like swore that this was the reason why he got his PhD. And of course, this is not the reason. But I think even when I was a PhD, I had my silly superstitions. I was like, I have to do this before I run the PCR or it's just not going to work. Uh, do you have any of your own kind of weird science superstitions that you do? I wouldn't say it's a superstition, but... I definitely have to listen to music when I'm doing boring and repetitive work. And I found that if I don't listen to my reggae, Afrobeats, or hip hop while I'm doing my plaque essays, I'm more likely to mess up. So let's <laughs> have music if I'm going to do something that's really tedious and requires lots of concentration. And it works so far, so that's good. Yeah. <laughs> And so in your UCR biography, I think we touched upon this a little bit, but I want to go a little bit deeper into your research. On the website, you use some very sophisticated language, like a major interest of my lab is understanding how emerging and re-emerging viruses antagonize innate immune pathways to promote, it, to promote their replication. Can you break that down a little bit for us and kind of talk about it in a more general sense? Um, okay, so... When cells um, are infected by viruses, they produce um, this chemical called interferon. And so interferon is one of the earliest innate immune responses. And interferons will bind to cells and 
that binding leads to a cascade of events that results in the production of antiviral proteins. And these antiviral proteins can suppress viral replication. And yet viruses have evolved to actually fight this interferon response. And that's what I am interested in. I'm interested in the inter interferon antagonists that viruses encode and how they actually subvert this antiviral state that our cell has um, established. I hope that sounds clearer than the other language. <laughs> I know virology, is, it can be hard, I think, to communicate virology because it's at the intersection of epidemiology and like, which is its own little language and virology and like every single one has its own language you have to learn. Agreed, agreed. Yeah, and don't get me started on immunology, like that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, immunology was, um, that was a tough class to get through. I think I took that the same point I was taking OCHEM. So that was, that was a tough year for sure. <laughs> I can't even imagine. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about UCR's COVID testing site. You're still involved a lot with that, correct? I'm less involved with it these days, but yes, I do go in from time to time. Yeah, so last year we set up the testing center. Um, it was five faculty volunteers and... We had a little bit of money from the um, leadership, but a lot of what we did was to get donations of equipment and reagents and supplies. We got two rooms set up over in the um, in MRB, and now we're processing over 600 samples a day, and most of the procedures are actually being performed robotically. We have two robots over there, and samples are tracked using barcodes. And students living on campus, in the dorms and around campus are currently being tested twice a week. And student athletes are being tested three times a week per NCAA rules. And the day-to-day -day work is being accomplished now by two part-time grad students and two technicians under the um, supervision of Dr. Kathy Borkovic, who is the, uh, also the chair of my department. So yeah, it was cool. It was a lot of work though. Is UCR the only UC that has its own COVID testing site or do others also have them? Do you know? Others do as well. Yeah. So do, is it like, is it a mandatory testing or is it volunteer? Yeah. So this is actually set by the, the leadership of the school. And right now it's only for UCR students. So yeah. And it's specifically for the undergrads. And I do think it's mandatory if you're in the dorms that you have to get tested I mean, there are not that many people on campus, but there are some. And so they're being tested weekly. Has UCR seen any outbreaks or has it been pretty controlled? It's been pretty low, but there have been, there have been positives. By and large, it's been pretty good on campus. People are obviously um, really taking it seriously. So we get a few, but not as many as I'd say outside of campus. So what was one of the biggest challenges to opening up this testing site? I'd say the biggest challenge was money. <laughs> it always is, huh? <laughs> right, yeah. Like, so, you know, we had such a small budget, but, you know, with people like pooling resources and donating supplies and stuff, that helped. And then eventually leadership, the leadership required, realized that they had to, had to give more money. And so that helped as well because we needed more PCR machines. We needed to get the robot set up properly, things like that. And the other part was the working the evenings and weekends that it required to kind of get all of the, the um, testing done so that we could get our emergency use um, application approved 
And uh, it was kind of a deadline because they wanted us to have that um, facility open really quickly. So that it was at the time that we put into it was a, a lot, I would say. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can only imagine. So I guess like once the need is over for the COVID testing site at UCR, what's going to happen to the equipment? I have no idea. I've been thinking about that. I'm like, if somebody could give me one of those real-time PCR machines, I'd be pretty happy. <laughs> right? Like, I'm sure a lot of people would be like, yeah, I'd like a robot, that QPCR machine. There's <laughs> plenty of labs in need. <laughs> I don't know what they'll do with it, but I'm sure they'll repurpose it and give it to somebody. Mm-hmm. Or maybe put it in the core facility or something for communal use. Yeah, it could work. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I have to ask this question. Uh, But do you, as a virologist, see any reason for people not to get the vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine? No, I do not. I recommend that everyone who is able to get a vaccine get it because, I mean, we have, right now we have uh, approval of two really highly efficacious vaccines, 95% efficacy. That's amazing. I would never have expected it to to be that high. And so, and we're not seeing any adverse effects. I think, what, five in a million people have developed an allergy to the vaccine and none of this has, none of this has been fatal or anything that it's easily manageable. Um, so I don't think there are any, there's no downside to getting this vaccine, only an upside that you'll be protected and you'll be able to go out there and, you know, live a life again. Yeah. Which I think we all want. <laughs> I cannot wait. I am so sick of not seeing people. What's the thing you're looking forward to the most once COVID is all over? Um, eating inside restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> Drinking at a bar. Yes. Socializing in close quarters. Yeah, that's what I am missing the most. Just that general sort of camaraderie and socialization that you really can only get in person. Do I go to Zoom happy hours, but it's not the same. It's not, no. Yeah, I hear you there. I'm 100% with you. Where do you see virology and or microbiology as a whole going in the next 10 years? And how do you see like this new mRNA vaccine kind of changing the next new emerging virus that might come? Yeah, so as far as virology goes, I think there will definitely be more of a focus on emerging viruses. For the longest while, um, things that have been emerging or re-emerging have kind of been ignored funding-wise. But it's very clear at this point that we never know, you know, which group of viruses the next pandemic will come from. And so it makes sense to just study viruses widely and broadly so that we don't have something like SARS-CoV-2 catching us off guard again. So I'm hoping that that's something that we'll learn from the pandemic that, you know, it makes sense to study many things. We know, we know that we were able to get a jump start on the SARS-CoV-2 um, research and the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine because of what we had learned from SARS-1. But so many people who had gotten funding for SARS-1 back in the day when SARS-1 was a thing, they lost all that funding. And so all that research got shut down. If people were, had been able to continue working on these agents, then we would have actually been further along with SARS-CoV-2 coming along. So I think there's that. And then the vaccine landscape for sure. Now that we know that these mRNA um, vaccines are can actually lead to really good immunity and are easy to produce, I think that opens up a lot of doors for us in the future to rapidly create vaccines when new threats emerge. 
The other thing that I think people might start focusing on more, and which is what I actually focus on my research, is post-targeted therapeutics. So I think that one thing that we can see from the COVID-19 pandemic is that COVID-19 is mostly an immune-mediated disease. So, you know, people are, you know, want to develop antivirals, but the antivirals will only work for what, the first two or three days. But after that, it's not the virus that's actually driving this, the, the disease. It's actually your immune response and how dysregulated it has become. And so I'm thinking more people will be focused on trying to understand what leads to this immune dysregulation that happens with so many of these highly pathogenic viruses. And that will allow us to come up with therapies that don't necessarily target the virus, but instead balance the immune response so that our bodies can fight the infection and fight the disease. So that's where I think things are going. It will be exciting when we get there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So do you have any other final thoughts to share about virology or your microbial journey or being in academia or? I would say that if people are interested in doing virology, that they should definitely go and explore, you know, go volunteer in a lab, you know, once things calm down and to explore it as a a potential career option because there is never a boring day in the life of a virologist. Mm -hmm. Especially during a pandemic. And then if you're filling out paperwork, that's boring. But (laughs) outside of that, the research is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having me, Elizabeth. This was really fun. Well, Microbial Nation, that's the end of our show. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the exciting research of Dr. Juliet Morrison. And if you did and you want more and who doesn't, go ahead and hit her up on Twitter at J-U-M-O-D-R. And as always, if you'd like to get in touch, send us a Gmail at Microbigals or follow us on Twitter, Reddit, or Instagram at Microbigals. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S. Till next time. Bye.